Cause us to live more of what we ought to be for you. And so guide and direct our steps, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles, if you will. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We've spent a good deal of time kind of laying some groundwork um, regarding prophecy. I uh, have neglected on teaching on prophecy during the time that I've been pastor here up until just recently due to the fact that just prior to becoming pastor, Brother Randy had just finished uh, about a two-year study uh, and uh, had gone very thoroughly through prophecy. And um, I, I, I think that the Bible teaches very clearly that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's all profitable to us. And when I do, when I think of those things, I have to look at prophecy and I have to say, okay, what profit is it to us? What benefit is it? And uh, the Bible teaches us, uh, Paul told Timothy, there were four main areas that the, the gospel would be uh, profitable to us, that the Bible would be profitable to us. Uh, and he speaks of those things for um, correction and for reproof and for instruction in righteousness and that the man of God may be perfect and truly furnished. And so he gives some reasons why it is profitable to us, how it is profitable to us. It's uh, profitable in the area of our doctrine, uh, first and foremost. But it does reprove. It does uh, help to guide and direct our steps and teach us uh, not only what we're doing wrong and correct those things, uh, but teach us how to do what's right. And so as we look at uh, prophecy, I don't think that there's any difference in it. In fact, as we look in uh, Revelation 1 and began the study, uh, the Bible said that blessed are they which hear the words and which read the words, but it also says, and doeth whatever is, whatsoever is written therein. And so uh, there are some things that uh, oftentimes we look at as the blessings of reading Revelation or hearing Revelation, but the, the truth is there is some practicalness to it. And we've discussed a little bit about that. And I want to just give a reminder because we've spent a number of weeks on the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches, and certainly many things that we have learned uh, that we need to avoid as church, as a church, and many things that we need to uh, be involved in and kind of stir our hearts again in, in is regarding uh, our church and our individual lives. Uh, we've seen God as He's given His some of His attributes in the beginning of each of those letters. <coughs> we've seen the promises to those that are saved, those that have overcome. Uh, the, the Bible says, "He that overcometh," and then He gives the promises to them. And that's been an encouragement to us. And then last week we kind of wrapped up the seven letters to the seven churches by showing some parallels between the parables of Matthew chapter 13 and the seven letters to the seven churches, as well as the quite possibly the parallels to different periods of time throughout the history of the New Testament church since the time of Christ. And there's no distinct place in the Bible that says that this is specifically written to parallel church history, but it is interesting to note that it does parallel. It seems to uh, very much characterize different periods of time in the history uh, of the New Testament church from the time of Christ uh, and all the way until the present day. And uh, we wrapped up last week with the church of Laodicea and uh, how that they were, uh, they thought very highly of themselves. And they thought that they were, uh, they were in need of nothing and they were uh, rich and increased with goods. And that certainly characterizes the, the churches, <coughs> excuse me, generally speaking, 
in uh, what we would consider to be the, the well-known churches of our country today. Uh, some of these seeker-friendly and uh, the, the, uh, this uh, a word of faith movement type uh, church that says we're wealthy, we're increased with goods, we have need of nothing, it's God's will for everybody to prosper. And uh, they come out and say that. And God tells this church at Laodicea and said, uh, Knowest thou not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? And he challenges them, and he tells them uh, that they are to uh, buy, of them gold, buy of him gold that has been tried in the fire, and to uh, have buy of him white raiment, and that they could be clothed, and uh, their nakedness would not uh, appear. But then he made this statement. He told them to anoint their eyes with eye salve. I think that's a very interesting thing, that this church, the, the, the part of the problem they had was that they did not see clearly. They, they saw themselves a certain way, and God saw them a completely different way. And I'll be real frank with you. I think that ought to be the, the prayer of every individual Christian. Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see things the way that you see them. Help me to see me the way that you see me. Help, help me to see the world the way that you see the world. Help me to see the lost the way that you see the lost. And I think one of the great problems that we battle, that we struggle with, is we see things differently than the way God sees them. And we ought to pray for God to give um, the ability to open our eyes, to help us to see things. And uh, we're living in a day where even people coming out of the pews of, of good Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching churches uh, are following after ways of compromise. Um, it has been... Uh, heartbreaking to me in, in the last six months or so, a number of ministries and, and pastors that I have known for many, many years and have looked up to and have respected and have uh, been encouraged in my own ministry to remain steadfast because I've watched over the years as those churches have gone through the battle and have remained steadfast. And I've watched as some of the men that led those ministries uh, paid the price to take a stand and not to move and they have for a number of years done this, and it's been so heartbreaking in the last six months or so uh, of my life to hear of several of them and to talk even with some of the pastors and to hear how they are moving and how they are changing. And I've, I've been so sorrowful of those things. And I hope and I pray that our church and our ministry never goes that route. That we will always hold to the truth of God's Word, that this book will always be our standard. It will always be our guide. So as we get ready to look into chapter number 4, we're going to uh, make some introductory remarks, and then we're going to get into the first few verses of chapter 4 tonight, uh, Lord willing, if we have enough time to get that far. But I want to lay a little bit of groundwork and, by way of trying to help us as we go through Revelation. There are times that the book of Revelation is speaking very, very literal, uh, and then there are times that it does speak figuratively. And oftentimes, quite often in Revelation, it will let us know when that time happens. There are a handful of times that we just understand by the context that obviously it may be uh, more of a symbol uh, than it is of a literal interpretation of that particular passage. Uh, but I want us to look at several things tonight that will be a help to us. Um, oftentimes, when we begin to look at Revelation specifically, let's take that last book specifically, and uh, we, we've read it before, we've, we've seen perhaps uh, some of the uh, old movies, Christian movies that have been made on it, and we have pictured in our mind's eye some things about the book of Revelation. If we are not careful, 
we will get so bogged down into the details of what Revelation speaks of, and we will miss the fact that this book is all about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in its entirety. The main theme in Revelation, while it deals with the end-time judgment, is all about Christ getting His rightful place and being lifted up, and finally, once and for all, in the eyes of every man, to be exalted to His place. And I think it does us well when we come to this study to understand as we read this and to look for the opportunities of where it reveals these things to us. Hold your place in chapter 4. Look with me, if you will, in chapter number 1. And I just want to show you one, one verse of Scripture here real quickly to try to help us understand this issue. In verse number 1, the Bible says, The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. This book is to reveal to us not only from the Lord Jesus Christ and from God, but it is to reveal to us about the Lord Jesus Christ and about God. And uh, we need to understand that uh, throughout this book, even when it's talking about the judgments that are coming, it's pointing to the judge. Even when it's talking about uh, those that are uh, uh, being uh, 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 rebellious towards God, it is exalting Him to His place and showing us that He is Worthy, And one of the things we'll find at the very onset of this book is God establishing in the second vision that He gives to John, He's establishing the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we didn't need this to know that He was worthy. We certainly knew uh, that He was already the Lamb that had been slain. But the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation so clearly about this thing, and we're going to take a few moments to look at it. Let me give you a real quick breakdown if you're taking notes tonight. If you're not, I do have these notes printed, and I'll be glad to make them available to you after this lesson, or if we don't get through all of them after the, uh, next week's lesson. And uh, I do like to hold on to my notes uh, while I'm teaching, uh, and just in case while I'm teaching I find a, a mistake in them, I want to correct it before I give them out to you. So I usually make those available after we're done teaching. Um, and so uh, if you're taking notes and would like to take notes, that's not going to bother me at all, and feel free to do that. But let me give you a real quick breakdown. Uh, as we look at Christ being the central figure, the central theme uh, throughout the book of Revelation, uh, in chapters 1 through 3 we see uh, Christ... Uh, as the risen and glorified Son of God. And, and over and over again, uh, the Bible talks about the fact uh, of His attributes, what He's done for these churches, uh, His working in these churches, uh, and what a beautiful picture it is of the Lord Jesus Christ in His risen form and the position that He has. The Bible teaches us very clearly that He is the head of the church. Uh, he's the one that is to have the preeminence in the church. And so chapters 1 through 3 kind of shows us that again. In chapter 4 through chapter number 19, you're going to see him pictured as the lamb uh, that is uh, not only worthy, but also has authority. Uh, the lamb that is worthy and the lamb that has authority to judge those that are in the earth. And you'll see that in chapters 4 through 19. In uh, chapter, uh, as we get to uh, chapter 20... Uh, the first six verses of chapter 20, you're going to see Jesus Christ pictured as a king uh, that is reigning with those saints that have already been glorified, those that have their glorified bodies. And you'll see that in chapter 20, verse uh, the first six verses. You'll see Him as a king reigning. In chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, 
you're going to see Jesus as the judge at the great white throne uh, judgment. In uh, chapter 21, verses uh, 1 through chapter 22, verse 6, you're going to see uh, Jesus as the Savior and the Lamb upon the throne. And then finally, as we get to the end of uh, chapter, uh, the chapter, last chapter in Revelation, chapter 22, we're going to see Jesus, and He is revealed as the root and the offspring of David, and the Bible refers to Him there as the bright and morning star. And again, you'll find Him throughout Revelation. You say, well, uh, boy, the Antichrist sure has a lot to do with Revelation, doesn't He? Well, He does, but even He draws attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even He shows us that Christ is the one that is the true and reigning King. He's the one that is able and has uh, defeated uh, all of these evils and all these things that will be mentioned of in the book of Revelation. We find that He is the one that is worthy to be the judge and to issue the judgments uh, to those that are on this earth. The book of Revelation is a book of uh, seven different judgments that we know of, if you want to break them down uh, into, I'm sorry, eight different judgments, excuse me. They are known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Oftentimes you'll see that phrase in Scripture in different uh, passages, different books. It'll speak of the time of Jacob's trouble. It is speaking, uh, when you see that phrase, of the tribulation period, the time of God's judgment upon the earth. Uh, in chapters 4 through 16, you see the judgment of the rebellious nations. That's Israel as well as Gentile nations. So all of the earth uh, being judged uh, by their nations. Uh, in uh, chapter 17 and 18, you're going to see the judgment uh, of a world system. Uh, the, the Bible in the book of Revelation is going to refer to it as Babylon. This is the governmental system that is in place at that time. In chapter 19 through the end, almost the end of chapter number 19, you're going to see him judging the beast and the false prophet and the kings that assemble at the battle of Armageddon. You're going to see that judgment take place. In chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, you're going to see him judging the devil uh, and the time that he uh, has been here on this earth uh, during the millennial reign. Uh, in uh, chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, you're going to see the judgment uh, that uh, of those that were spared uh, from the tribulation period and were ushered into the millennial uh, period. Uh, and then in chapter 20, verse 7 through 9, you're going to see... Uh, the judgment of those that were rebellious upon the earth uh, at the end of the millennial reign. If you remember, Satan is uh, chained in the pit for uh, almost the full thousand years. Just before that thousand years is up, uh, he'll be released for a short season, and then God will judge those that rebel at that time and that are tempted uh, by Satan. That's in chapter 20, verse 7 through 9. And then there's a judgment of Satan himself, uh, final judgment uh, to him, which is in chapter 20, and verse number 10. And is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 3 also. Uh, and then there will be the final judgment. This is the judgment that the Bible speaks of uh, where God will make a final judgment to those that are unsaved. Uh, and that's in chapter 20, verses 11 through number 15, verse number 15. And is also spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 2. So uh, Christ is, is pictured quite clearly throughout Revelation. But we're going to find a number of judgments that take place specifically uh, directed and pointed to specific people. And we'll find those laid out as we go through uh, Revelation. Now, I'm going to go through a list of uh, some phrases and some wordings that are used in Revelation that we already know 
to be symbolic of something else. And oftentimes, Revelation itself will tell you that. And so I'm going to give you a list of those, and we're going to real quickly go through them. So keep your Bibles handy, and we're going to look at them. We've already talked about the, excuse me, the seven stars uh, that were found in chapter 1 and verse 16. We already talked about that, that they represent the seven uh, uh, pastors, or the Bible refers to them as the seven angels uh, of the church, uh, uh, the churches that the letters were written to. Uh, We've already talked about the seven lampstands. These are the churches themselves, uh, found in chapter 1 and verse number 13, and you'll see that uh, uh, shown again in chapter 1 and verse number 20. So we've already dealt with uh, those uh, phrases, so I'm not going to take a lot of time on those. But I do want to look at a couple of others. Uh, Let's start in chapter number 2 and verse number 17, if you will. Chapter 2 and verse number 17 to the letter at Pergamos. Uh, God says this, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To eat of the hidden manna. Uh, The hidden manna uh, is a picture of Christ in His glory. Let's look at a couple of passages very quickly that will show us this. Let's first turn to Exodus chapter number 16. And again, as much as we're able to, we want the Bible to define these times for these phrases for us. I don't want to just give you supposition or what we think it to be. Uh, if the Bible can help us shed some light on it, then let's let the Bible do the work. Uh, Exodus chapter number 16, and let's look at verse number 33. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take uh, a pot uh, and put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations." As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony, notice that that word testimony, before the testimony to be kept. Isn't it interesting that the word testimony there is a capitalized word? That this is before the testimony to be kept. And then I want you to look with me in Hebrews chapter number 9, and we'll kind of draw it together here. Hebrews chapter number 9 and verse number 4. Uh, Let's back up to verse 1. We're going to come into verse number 4 as we talk about a description of the Old Covenant's sanctuary, the Old Testament tabernacle, if you will, later the temple. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly uh, sanctuary. For there uh, there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein uh, was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And uh, so we see here that this manna was, if you remember in the Old Testament, something that God gave every day, and if they took more than a day's worth, it rotted. Except on weekends, they were allowed to collect two days' worth on Friday, and it would last them for Friday and Saturday, so they weren't able to collect on the Sabbath. But if they kept it for more than two days, it would rot and spoil. But there was a manna that was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a picture of Jesus, the bread of life. And it did not, it did not spoil, and it was there, and is spoken of both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, which then was placed inside of the Holy of Holies, which was known as the mercy seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when Christ came and He filled the temple with His glory, it was in this place of the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. And so, again, we find that this hidden manna uh, is in reference to Christ in His glory. Uh, And if you'll take and read through uh, verse number uh, 17 in chapter 2 of Revelation, uh, with that in mind, it helps it make sense to us. Uh, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, and we know that that phrase is referencing those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, not those that have endured uh, till the end of the tribulation or till the end of their persecution. But these are those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. When Jesus was sitting in the upper room with his disciples at the Last Supper, He broke the bread and He gave it to them and said what? He said, take, eat. This is My body which is broken for you. A picture of the covenant, the new covenant that He was getting ready to establish. When He gave them the cup, He said, this is the New Testament in My blood. He's saying this new covenant is now being established. And this this picture of this meal was the covenant meal that from time to time was to be recognized and to be observed by way of remembrance of the covenant. And uh, I love the idea of what Christ did there in the Last Supper and what we refer to as the Lord's Supper that we partake of now in our churches uh, being the way of remembrance for us to remember uh, the New Testament that is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the hidden manna here is speaking of Christ in His glory. Let's look in verse number, chapter number 2, verse number 28. Again, we see uh, in verse number 26 uh, to the church of Thyatira, he uh, he that overcometh, again, is that phrase of those that have been saved. uh, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And again, referencing here to uh, the... A return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we give him the morning star. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's look in chapter number 22 of Revelation and verse number 16 and see uh, where this uh, phrase is used again. Chapter 22 and verse number 16. And let's see if we can understand from this what the morning star is for sure. Verse number 16, Jesus is speaking here, and He says, I, Jesus, have sent Mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and what? Morning star. Alright? So when we see the term morning star, we know that it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright, chapter number 3, verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things, saith he, uh, that is holy, he that is true, the he that hath the key of David. The key of David uh, is a phrase that we see a few times. Um, this is the idea of God being, Christ being able to uh, open doors and not uh, have them closed and close doors and not have them open. The idea that he has the power to open and close different things or uh, create opportunities and circumstances and forbid those things to happen. Uh, Again, hold your place here. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. And let's look again in verse number 22. 
Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Who are we speaking of here? Who's, whose shoulder is he going to lay it on? Okay, we're speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's back up a minute. Um, in verse number 21, And I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And even Christ gives record uh, to uh, the church that he is the one that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. And so again, we know that the key of David is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ having the power to open and to close things. The seven lamps of fire we've already discussed being the sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit of God found in chapter 5 and verse number 6. Um, and also, I believe it was in Isaiah 23. I'll have to get that reference for you again if I can. Uh, but uh, giving indication of that. The seven eyes, again, dealing with the same uh, idea, uh, and we find this phrase used in chapter number five and verse number six of Revelation. Chapter five and verse number six of Revelation. So the seven lamps of fire and the seven eyes. Let's look in cha- chapter five and verse number six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, capital L, as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven, capital S, spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. It does not mean that there are seven Holy Spirits, but that there are seven attributes or seven workings that the Holy Spirit does. They are depicted in the book of Isaiah, uh, and I don't have that reference handy for you, uh, but we did teach on it here a few weeks ago uh, when we taught on the church at Pergamos. And if you'd like to uh, have that information, I'll be glad to get that to you as well. Um, Let's look in chapter 4, verse number 7. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And we find four different beasts here that were mentioned in chapter number 7. And these are the attributes or the different uh, uh, areas of authority, perhaps, or the things that make up the character of God. And we're going to see those a lot more clearly as we go throughout the book of Revelation. So that kind of brings us up to the phrases that we've already seen in chapters 1 through 3 and uh, beginning of chapter number 4. So let's go ahead and get into chapter 4. And as we go down through these and we get further into Revelation, chapter by chapter, uh, we'll give you some more of these that uh, will be uh, helpful to us so we can understand them. So let's begin reading in chapter number 1 and verse number 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, that's interesting, because who has the power to open the door of heaven? The Lord Jesus Christ. He has the keys of David. Uh, And I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, we find a hint, and we taught on the uh, pre-tribulational rapture, Uh, We spent two whole weeks on it earlier uh, in this study, so I'm not going to reteach that. But we do find here a hint of the rapture taking place, and certainly would fit within the chronology of the way that the book of Revelation is laid out. We find that the first uh, few chapters of Revelation are dealing with uh, the 
uh, church, uh, the, the New Testament church. There were seven in, in individual churches that were listed there. And these churches were being dealt with by God. Then we have chapter 1 of verse number 4 where uh, the Bible says that, uh, uh, that uh, he was uh, uh, called up. And uh, then it says, uh, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter, meaning the things which follow from this point forward. So again, it kind of gives us the picture, even though it's not a, a proof text in and of itself, it does give us a very good picture of the pre-tribulational uh, rapture being uh, a truth. And so we find here a couple of things in verse number 1 that I think are very, very important, uh, referring to this picture of the rapture taking place. The first one is that he hears a voice. And if you remember when the rapture takes place, uh, I think Paul told it in First Thessalonians chapter number 4, uh, that he's going to come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the what? The what? The trump of God. So look at verse number 1 here. He hears the voice... Uh, and notice it says here, which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. So we see the voice and we see reference to the trumpet and we find the calling up of him coming up hither. And then we hear him say, I'm going to show you the things which shall be hereafter. In other words, things that happen after he has dealt with the churches. And so the churches, I believe, will no longer be here at the point that chapter 4 and verse number 1 begins to take place, verse number 2 begins to take place. You don't hear of a church in the rest of the book of Revelation. You're not going to hear of them being God working through them or using them as a local New Testament church any longer. They will not be here during that tribulation period of time. And so we believe in a premillennial and pre-tribulational rapture because of that. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, I'm, going to stop, I'm going to stop right there for just a few minutes because I want us to look at a couple of things here. Uh, we find that there is a very similar parallel that John experiences here to what uh, Ezekiel experienced in the book of Ezekiel when he was caught up and was able to see some of these things. And uh, if you'd like to read about that, uh, we're going to, I'm going to show you just a couple of them, and then I'll give you the references to the rest of them. But let's go back to the book of Ezekiel for a moment, and chapter number 1. Ezekiel chapter number 1. And uh, Ezekiel has a very similar experience. We find in verse number 1, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, and the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And so, again, there's a vision that Ezekiel has here. He expresses several uh, things that are uh, very characteristic of the same thing that happens to John in Revelation chapter number 4. Look with me in chapter number 3 of Ezekiel. In verse number 14, we see a little more information given here. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse number 14. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. So kind of the idea of come up hither is what it would be paralleling in the book of Revelation. And I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit by the hand of the Lord, uh, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Uh, let's look in Ezekiel chapter number 8. And again, he's describing his experience here in verse number 3. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse number 3. And he put forth the form of a hand and took me up by the lock of mine head, and the Spirit 
lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provoketh to jealousy. And again, the idea of being caught up in this vision. Uh, chapter number 11 and verse number 1 of Ezekiel. Another thought along this line. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house, which looketh eastward. And behold, at the door of the gate, five and twenty men, according, uh, among whom I saw. And he gives some names of some of those that he saw there. In verse number 24 of that same chapter, uh, we find afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into uh, Chaldea to them uh, of the captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. And so we find a very similar experience in that the Holy Spirit is catching these men away. He's drawing them to the places that He wants them to be for those, these visions. And John is going through this. And the Bible says in verse number uh, 1 that the, uh, the voice came out and said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately, notice verse number 2, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat upon the throne. Now, it's interesting to me that before John begins to describe who is on the throne, he sees the throne first, and he begins to describe the throne. And he says in verse number 3, And he that sat was, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat on it uh, was to look upon like Jasper, uh, and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, inside like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had to face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, and I want you to notice this, holy... Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne, and worship Him that liveth forever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art what? Thou art what? Worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. I find that in this particular description of not only the throne, but the one that sits upon the throne, we find here that the 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 amazing amount of information that God chooses to reveal about it is to the place where our finite minds struggle comprehending it fully and understanding it. We've never seen such beasts as one that had four faces. 
We've never understood the glory that takes place here. We don't understand as these beasts go around and they, with their wings, fly around crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Hold your place here for a minute. Turn to Isaiah chapter number 6. And we'll end here. I'm just going to make this one thought and we'll close. Isaiah chapter number 6. Let's begin in verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like the same throne. With twain He covered His face. With twain He covered His feet. And with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is what? Full of His glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice what Isaiah's response is to this. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When I read chapter number 4 of Revelation, you say, well, what does the significance of all of those faces mean? I don't know that I can tell you all of it. We're going to talk a little bit about it and talk a little bit about what each of them may represent as we go through the book. But I'll be honest with you. The importance is not what do each of those represent. The importance is that we understand and see that whatever we think Him to be, He is way beyond that. It is, I believe, a purpose to give not only John, but those that read this book a sense of the mighty, infinite power of God Himself. To, to help us to understand that we don't understand Him. To help us understand that in His presence, we can do nothing but say, woe is me. For us to understand that when He gets ready to get, do all of these things that we look at and say, what a horrible Horrible judgment that is upon the sin of man. That he is worthy and he has every right to. I believe when we look at chapter number 4, God is laying the foundation with John saying, Listen, you're getting ready to see some terrible things that must be done in order for a just God to judge sin. But understand, I am the one to do it. I am worthy. I am just. I am Almighty God. I find as we get here, and and Isaiah, as as great a man as Isaiah was, falls in the presence of God and says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And the one the Bible says in verse number, uh, For I have seen, mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one flew among uh, one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thine lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, notice this, here am I, send me. Sounds like a very similar description, doesn't it, of the same throne. Creatures with six wings. They're flying around the throne. They're crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. He is worthy. And we find this not only in Revelation, we find it in Isaiah chapter number 6. And here's the one truth I want to leave you with tonight, and we're going to be gone, okay? 
Hang in there. When we begin to see God the way that He really is, we will begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. And I will say this, we will have a spirit of humility, but can I also throw this one out to you? We will have a spirit of service. Isaiah fell, woe is me. And God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And you know what Isaiah said? Here am I, send me. I find Isaiah's attitude being one of saying, in essence, Lord, I'm not much. I'm not really anything. But if you need somebody to do your work, let me do it. You say, is there any purpose to prophecy? Absolutely. There are two main things that God gives us and tells us in Scripture are the purpose of prophecy. Number one is to bring great comfort to us. In John chapter number 14, he speaks of it being a comfort to us. Whether we go, whether he went, we knew and the way we knew. And it was to be of comfort to us. Let not your hearts be troubled, he begins the passage. When Paul spoke of it to the church at Thessalonica at the very end of chapter number 4, verse number 18, he says, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. The study of prophecy is not to scare the Christian. The study of prophecy is to bring comfort to the Christian. But can I tell you this? If all we get from it is comfort, then we have completely missed, I believe, one of the greatest purposes of prophecy. And that is it ought to convict us. Because if we can get to the place where we see from the onset, from the very first lesson, as we delve into these things of of revelation, the mighty hand of God, who He is. It will help us better understand who we are. And it will draw our hearts to a place of saying, I don't want anybody to go through those things. Lord, if you need somebody to tell them about you, here am I. I'll do it. I'm not much, but I can lift up a voice. And I can tell them before it's too late. I think a lot of times we study prophecy, we gain it, we're interested in it. Boy, that's interesting. We go home after hearing something like this. We say, boy, I've gained a lot of knowledge. I now know what's going to happen. Okay, but what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? These things are actually going to take place. In the next few weeks, you're going to hear some of the most horrendous judgments. They're going to actually happen. They're going to happen to folks that do not know Christ as their Savior. I heard a preacher say this one time, if God could allow us to peer into hell for just a few moments, we would be some of the best soul winners that there are. I certainly know that the rich man had a desire for others to go and tell his brothers not to come here. You say, why do we study prophecy? Well, it ought to bring comfort to us. A lot of times people come and say, boy, Pastor, look at all this stuff going on in the world. Aren't you worried about it? No, I'm not. Concerned, I want to lift a voice against it. I'm not going to stand idly by and watch it go on. But I'm not worried about it. Because I know what happens. But it certainly motivates us 
to do the work while we have time to. I don't know if the return of Christ is next week or in a thousand years from now. I really don't. I believe it will be soon. I think we ought always live that way. And we believe it to be very soon with eternity in mind. And that we take every opportunity, every opportunity to share the gospel everywhere we go. We preached on this Sunday. We're now sitting here on Wednesday night. There's been three days of the week go by. Life has happened. We've been in and out of places. We've met people. We've come across folks. Thinking back over these last three days, has there been an opportunity? And have we taken advantage of it or have we missed it? Oh, that we would learn the things that this book has to teach us about the end events and may they serve their purpose to awaken our eyes, help us to be watchful, help us to be diligent to serve while there's yet time. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. Lord, help us as we study the book of Revelation, as we learn about these end time events. Father, may they not just be interesting facts that we plug away in our file system of our mind. Lord, may they stir our hearts to action. May our eyes be opened. May our ears hear. And may our spirits be stirred.